Good morning, church family. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm glad you're here to worship the Lord because He is good. Isn't He? Yeah. And um, Peter drew our attention to the goodness of God even in difficult moments. I want you to remember that because this passage, and as you're getting prepared this morning, this morning I would ask you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 13. This, this passage is one of those ones where we have to squint a little bit more specifically to see God's goodness. And uh, so we're going to do that this morning because we believe that God is good and God's goodness shines throughout all of Scripture. And uh, over the course of the summer, we're talking about God's glory. And I don't know if you've been following, but we kind of have been on a trajectory where Moses said, show me your glory. And there was a moment of awesome power and and an awesome display of God's glory, Uh, but we've sort of been riding that down into the the pit, and uh, this week we get to the bottom of the pit. Now, take heart, because next week we start to work our way out of the pit, And uh, but this passage is difficult. You'll notice if you're someone who pays attention to titles of sermons, and if that means anything, uh, I've entitled this sermon, In Darkest Night Shines a Ray of light. So we'll read the passage together starting in verse 14 and we'll go through the end of the chapter and we'll see if we can see God's goodness, okay? So read with me silently as I read out loud. 2 Kings chapter 13 verse 14. Now when Elijah had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him crying, "My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elijah said to him, Take a bow and arrow, arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hand on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elijah said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek, until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Weird. (laughs) Now, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. 
And believe it or not, that's really a portion of Scripture. And you're thinking, where are we going this morning? Well, let me give you a little bit of a picture to start. Did you know that total solar eclipses are very, very rare? Maybe you remember this if you're old enough. Uh, The last time that a total solar eclipse was in the continental United States was, anyone know? 1979. And I think there's one coming up in the next year or two, but they're, they're very, very rare. And what I mean by that total solar eclipse, it's when the moon aligns with the sun so that for the briefest of moments, the moon completely blots out a person's ability to see the sun. During the daytime, it's, it's completely dark. Where the sun should be, there's a black circular void. Now, we've been talking about God's glory this summer and there have been times where we have compared God's glory to the sun. It's, it's awesome and life-giving, but it's also dangerous when you approach it too closely or irresponsibly. And in the, the eclipse analogy, I think we find another lesson about God's glory. There are times when the world is just spinning out of control and it's spinning out of control at such an alarming rate. Evil sort of is oppressing all of society. Natural disasters are rampant and we start to wonder, is God truly in control? We wonder, has, has God left the world to reap what it's sown? And things are in that moment so dark that we can see no evidence of God's hand, His sovereign hand. The light light of hope at the end of the tunnel is so dim that it's only barely perceptible. However, just like in the darkness of the eclipse, it would be foolish for us to, to say, oh, the sun is gone, we've lost it, it's no longer there. In the same way, it would be foolish of us when it's difficult to see God's glory shining through or shining brightly to think that God has somehow forever removed his hand from this world. The sun, even though it's positioned precisely behind the moon, it's coming back. That's the secret of of the solar eclipse, right? It's, It's coming back. I think Mark Twain wrote a story about that and how a man who time-traveled was able to predict that. But in that moment where the sun is behind the moon, its effects are significantly diminished. But they're still visible. So in the same way, in the darkest moments of history, no matter how long they last, God is still present. So in those moments, if we're listening, God is going to remind us of his faithful promises so that we can wait with hope for his redemptive plan to unfold. Even in the darkest moments of life, God is faithful to his covenant promises. So this passage in 2 Kings, I think, represents one of the lowest moments in all of the history of Israel. And when you read through your Bible, 
on a yearly basis or however often you do that, you might be tempted when you're reading a story like this to wonder, where is God? How, how is this passage, when I read it on a Wednesday morning in May, supposed to edify me? It's supposed to reveal God's good purposes. And yet we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is useful. So let's look at this story and let's see if we can see God's hand. I think we will. This passage is really the culmination of a series of unfortunate events. Uh, When we were last with Israel, the people were rejoicing and they were worshiping because they were remembering the great heritage of blessing that they had. They they had seen God work powerfully in blessing the nation and in defeating their enemies. He had kept their faithful promises, his faithful promises to them. And so they sang, remember last week? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. They, They sang this at David's direction, Psalm 103, where we were last week. And that song referred back to their history. It referred back to Moses who had asked God, show me your glory. And God had obliged that. And there was a time in history as we've followed it throughout the summer where the Israelites were were the world's dominant superpower with God by their side. By God's mighty hand, you'll remember they had miraculously defeated and plundered the Egyptians who were the reigning superpower at that time. The nation enters into covenant with God as he displays his awesome majesty on the holy mountain. He would be their God and they would be his people. From there, history tells us, the Bible tells us that they entered into the promised land, that place that was flowing with milk and honey, that good and uh, and and place of rest, that good land and that place of rest. And so they conquered the land and they drove out their enemies with God's help and God established them as a nation. In fact, he established them a nation as a nation and over time, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, he anointed a king to rule over them, a king who would, uh, would, would lead them in his way. And that king we know was David. David, this, this tender warrior, this lead worshiper of the nation, this man after God's own heart. The nation of Israel, we use this phrase with Israel, but it's, or with America, I should say, but it's really true of the nation of Israel. They had a manifest destiny. Now, not everything was perfect. There were um, difficulties and false starts along the way. They didn't always obey God completely. He had to redirect them at times. But for the most part, the nation of Israel is the place to be. And then, everything sort of goes sideways. After God's glory was displayed so magnificently in the days of Moses... And after God established this dominant kingdom under David, everything falls apart. The kingdom that God had established under David splits into two. We talked about that not in this series, but in the previous series that we did. And the book of Kings, as we turn to it this morning, split into 1 Kings and 2 Kings, is really the story of that divided kingdom. 
So when you read the book of Kings, it's going to bounce back and forth between this divided kingdom. There's Israel in the north, ten tribes, the northern kingdom known as Israel, and there's Judah in the south, two tribes. And what we find is that this nation, even the divided kingdom, the two nations, are largely unsuccessful. The leaders are mostly bad because they don't follow what the Lord says to do. Now this is especially true in the northern kingdom. And our story this morning comes from the northern kingdom, known as Israel. If you read through Israel's history, the northern kingdom, it's difficult to find really anything positive recorded for more than a hundred years. There's more than ten kings that pass without anything good happening. And there's one repeated phrase that sums up each and every leader. We find it in this story this morning. It says they followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Or they, they did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You see it in verse 2 and verse 11 of our story this morning, 1 Kings 13. Now, I will recall, in case you've forgotten, that this Jeroboam, who is the standard of wickedness in the northern kingdom, had instigated the division of the two kingdoms, the division of God's people. His counterpart in Judah, Rehoboam, the king up uh, in the southern kingdom, had threatened to deal with the people harshly. He said, I'm going I'm to really lay the law down. So he wasn't innocent in the matter either. But Jeroboam takes the people and he sort of forms this new nation. And his very first act as the leader of the new nation was a whopper. Let's look at it just for a second. I'm going to put it up on the screen. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 through 33. I'll put some key parts up there. It says this, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. That's a bad thing because they're going back to where they came from. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So, this genius, Jeroboam, got a great idea because he took counsel and he made two calves of gold. Now, where have we heard that before? I wonder if it will work out okay for him. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. If only Jeroboam could have known that this would turn out poorly. If only there was some historical precedent to let him know what he was doing was not the right thing right? And of course I'm being sarcastic. But Jeroboam, this genius, didn't stop, stop there. He moves the center of the nation's new worship from Jerusalem's temple, Solomon's temple, to the north. He creates these alternative sites to, to worship God. And if that wasn't enough, he took the worship of the foreign gods and he combined it with the worship of the one true God so that no one knew what it was to really worship God in a legitimate way. At least according to the law. This was, this was the first instance maybe of cultural appropriation and false worship. Certainly that existed before this. But after that, the pattern for this new nation 
was established, and all the kings that followed him continued in the same practices and the same perversions. And then as we're reading along in the story, in the midst of the story, every once in a while, these characters will pop up, these guys named prophets, and they'll pop up with a word from the Lord. And the prophet would warn people and he would confront the leaders. He would warn them about the path that they were on and he would urge them to return to the covenant. In fact, there's two rock star prophets. If you've been around church, you know their names, Elijah and Elisha, right in succession from one another. They were powerful. Not only were their words powerful, but their deeds were powerful. Their their message was significant, and then God gave to them miracles in order to establish their credibility in speaking for him. And in this morning's passage, we read this odd little example, right, of the power of Elisha's ministry, verse 21 and 20 and 21. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, the marauding band uh, uh, was seen and the man was thrown in the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man, dead man, touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Wouldn't you like to have been there for that? That's kind of a, kind of a weird one. No explanation. It just sort of happens in Scripture. Um, but it goes to demonstrate, right, the power of these men, the authority that they brought from God. Elisha had been dead long enough, I want you to note, that his body had decomposed. All that was left were his bones. And yet, even his bones sparked this miraculous encounter. And these miraculous moments were both Evidence that God was speaking to the people and a warning to them that they'd better listen. And so here we come to today's passage that we read at the beginning. In Elisha's dying days, the wicked king, he's alternatively called Joash and Jehoahash. Don't confuse that. It's just a different spelling, kind of a shortened version. This king, this wicked king, had come to Elisha and had pleaded with him. Because the military of Israel at this point had been so depleted. If you look up in verses 3 and verse 7 earlier in the chapter, it tells us about the fact that Jehoahaz, Joash's father, had depleted the military. He'd been rebellious against God. God had been angry with Israel. He was handed over to these Syrian kings continually. And, uh, and, and in the midst of that, Jehoahaz, Joash's father, seeks the favor of the Lord. Now, he doesn't want to obey the Lord. He just wants God to to rescue him. And so the passage tells us that God sends a rescuer, probably Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, and God responds. Now, this section of Scripture right here, this preamble to what we're talking about, very reminiscent of the book of Judges, if you remember that. The book of Judges tells us everyone did what was right in their own eyes, There was no king in Israel. Now they have two kings in Israel and everyone still does what's right in their own eyes, including the kings, because they're not really listening to the Lord. And yet, there's there's turmoil, there's trouble. So in verse 7, we read the aftermath for Jehoahaz, Joash's father. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots 
and 10,000 footmen for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Israel is in trouble. Um, at its height, by the way, uh, uh, archaeologists and scholars tell us that Israel had 2,000 plus chariots. Now they're down to what? Ten. And again, the king calls out for help. This time he calls out to Elisha, and Elisha promises the king that he will strike down Syria three times, verse 19. But Elisha laments that it's not going to be more because the king didn't demonstrate more faith. And after Elisha is dead, the prophecy comes to pass, right? According to the very last verse of this passage, three times the king defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. But now, that last gasp of divine intervention seems to have passed. God is angry. The king is wicked. The prophet is dead. And it seems like God's glory is gone. I just want to put that out there for a second because I think we're very quick to move on and see what the rest of the story is, but we've got to live in that moment. These are bad times. These are bad, bad times. And we wonder what's going to happen. Do you, do you feel the futility here? And I, and I wonder if you have ever been in a similar situation where you feel a futility about your life or about the world around you. Everything is bleak. All hope is lost. And in that moment, the question is, how do you respond? It's like that moment where the sun hides behind the moon and there's almost no evidence of its existence. Except that if you know anything about a total solar eclipse, you know that there is a little bit of evidence. And if you're into science and those sorts of things, you can go on the web and you can see these pictures. At that moment, when the moon totally blots out the sun, what you see is you see this glow of the corona, the sun's outer atmosphere. Now, where the sun was, there's only a black void, but that glow still exists, pointing you to the fact that the sun is still there. Now, it certainly doesn't shine with the same brilliance as the midday sun, but it's there when you look for it. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Go on, see the images from Google Earth and whatever else. Observers will not see, they will not experience the heat and the light of the sun as normal, but the effect of the sun is too influential to be completely blotted out. This is a very dark chapter in Israel's history. There's almost no hope to be found, but in that darkness, the light of God's glory still shines. And it encourages people to look forward and not backward. Because I think this is what happens to us. In those dark moments, many people start to look backward with nostalgia. If we could only go back to the things the way things were 
10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever your chosen time frame would be, everything would be better. Aren't we prone to that reaction? If only God and prayer were back in the public schools, everything would be good. If only progressive politics had not invaded our government. And so we yearn for this simpler time with uh, an ethos or a code of ethics that takes you back to the good old days. But I don't believe that's the reaction of God's people. I don't believe that's how God would have us to react. Desiring the past. Disparaging the present. Dismayed about the future. I don't think that's it. This passage is hard to read, but in the midst of all of that darkness, right? I don't know if you caught it. I put it bigger on the screen. I think I did. There's one statement that should catch our attention. Look at verse 23. All this bad stuff is happening. The Syrians were in battle with Jehoahaz, the father, and Joash, the son. And right in the middle of that, it says this. Verse 23. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Now ask yourself, read, read that, put your, put your eyeballs on the passage, who makes that statement? It's the, it's the author. It's not the characters in the story. They can't really see it. It's the author, years later as he's recording this, that is pointing the people back to God's faithfulness. Back to God's sovereign hand. Even in the darkest chapter. Now, the author, by the way, is living in another dark time in Israel's history. He's living in exile. But he wants the people who are reflecting on God, on reflecting on his history, to recognize God's faithfulness. The character don't, don't recognize it. The characters of the story. But the author insists on a reminder of God's ancient covenant. And so he names God's name, the Lord, which is the guarantee of his promises to Moses. It, God's name was and it remains the certification that he is going to do the work of rescuing his people. And the author reaches back even further. He points to God's history with Abraham and the other patriarchs. It's a reminder that God has and God will continue to be at every stage of this nation from its birth until now into the future, their protector and their provider. In the midst of one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history, that faint glow of light shines as a reminder of the past and a guarantee of the future. Now, I think in that there are a couple of lessons for God's people, for us, as we experience similar moments of darkness. So I want you to consider these three with the rest of our time together. Number one, God, God's character is the guarantee of his covenant and his promises. We started out with this question. We are asking it with Moses. God, show me your glory. And God responded, right? He gives the people that definition of himself, 
so they could attach it to his covenant name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And we've traced incidences along the way where God brings people's minds back to that moment. And the leaders and the prophets throughout Scripture quote this same definition of God's self-revelation from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And the people have been taught, as we learned last week, for, for, for them to, to quote God back to himself. I, I think they're taught to demand that he remain faithful to his character and his promises. And of course God is going to answer that. Of course God is willing to do so. But in this passage, there's just only this smallest whisper of an illusion to this most quoted passage of Scripture in the Bible. It's not an exact quote, which often happens in Scripture. It's just a reminder of something that God said. But if we look carefully, there you can see it in verse 23. God has not forgotten. And even when we're completely overwhelmed, we can rely on God's goodness to his people. So the story of this divided kingdom is increasingly a story of unfaithfulness. And if we keep going on in the story, uh, the fate of the nation continues to spiral downward. In fact, one of the last gasp prophets that we read about in the northern kingdom is Hosea. Hosea is called the deathbed prophet because his ministry occurs just before the nation is about to go belly up. He's instructed, as you may know, to marry a prostitute because the Lord says that's a picture of the covenant relationship between Israel and God. You see, people, people will fail, but God never changes. And when you're in the darkness of life and the walls seem to be crumbling around you, God is still there. He is still faithful and His promises are still true because God never changes. We could plant the flag there, friends, and we can be absolutely sure of that. Here's a second lesson. Sometimes before things get better, they have to get worse. Oh, good. <laughs> the next chapter of Israel's story is equally dark, maybe worse. In just about 60 years' time, the Israelite nation is going to be conquered by the Assyrians. It's going to be taken into captivity. They're going to be forcibly removed from that promised land flowing with milk and honey. That land that was one of the cornerstones of God's covenant with his people. And again, this is the perspective from which the author writes this story. And he says, even those things are still true up until now about God. That's the author speaking from exile. There are a lot of people who think this, and maybe you're one of them. And I want to challenge you this morning. They think that being one of God's people is to be blessed. To be a Christian is to live life without worry or difficulty. Life is good, and if something is not good, then something is wrong with me or something is wrong with God. 
And as Christians, sometimes as they see the effect of sin swirling around them, they believe maybe it's their responsibility to restore the world back to the way it should be. Some kind of moral order so that God's rule and God's reign can be reestablished. So they involve themselves in politics or activism so that they can bring a knowledge of God to society. Um, I think the Bible is pretty clear that that is a, a, a lost cause. That's a futile pursuit. I'm, I'm not saying that being an activist is bad. I'm not saying that being involved in politics is wrong. We should be good citizens of the communities that we live in. But if your aim is to usher in God's kingdom on this earth, I, I hate to tell you, but you're fighting a losing battle. We live in a broken world, and Scripture is pretty clear it's going to get worse. And it's going to get worse long before it gets better. But just like that eclipse, right, from the perspective of eternity, that dark absence of the sun, it only lasts a moment. There's an ultimate end of the story, and the ultimate end of the story is the brilliant display of God's glory. And so that's our third lesson this morning, that the, div- excuse me, the divine victory at the end of the story, that's our hope. I really think that human beings are programmed to look for hope. We want to know what's going to get us out of the trouble that we're in or what does the future hold. And there, there are lots of places that people can mistakenly turn for that hope. Some people... They get in trouble, they throw up a religious Hail Mary, God help me, I'm in trouble, right? That's what the king tries to do in this story. He seeks favor with God. He calls Elijah over, I need Elisha over, I need some help, brother. Even though he wasn't a God follower, he, he tried it. He tried it with Elisha because Elisha seems to have this powerful connection to God. And so maybe that's you or maybe you know someone like that. People get into a tight spot and it drives them to God in desperation. Good thing. They've made poor decisions in life. They're in danger of losing everything that's precious to them. Job, financial security, marriage, children. And so they come to the church, which is a very, very good instinct. And maybe that's you this morning. But I'm going to warn you, if that is only a last-ditch effort to salvage the goodness of your life, it's not properly motivated. If, on the other hand, you recognize that you have been ignoring God and doing things your own way, and you are ready to hand everything over to Him, I believe you can find success. You may not fix all the brokenness that is been brought about by your bad choices, but you can find the hope of eternity. You can find new life. God can bless you in this moment forward. People hope in their, in their own might, in their own virtue, in their own intellect. They get involved in cultural renewal and reformation. They look for political saviors. Family, there there are no answers in these things, at least no answers of eternal substance. I hate to break it to you, 
but there are no saviors on the ballot in 2024. (laughs) In Israel's case, God had promised them to make them the hope of the nations. But here they are, and they are hopeless. But the lesson is that God is faithful. He remembered His promise, and eventually, right, from this perspective, in the future, He sent His Son, Jesus. He sent His Son, Jesus, to fulfill His promises to His people and to the world. And people are given the opportunity to respond in faith to His salvation offer, to accept the gift of new life because of His death and resurrection. Now consider this. As God's people, even in the darkness of our lives, Jesus is still our hope. He is still the hope of all the nations because He's promised to return in power and in glory and to rule and to reign and to set everything back to the way it should be. That's our hope. So we're here talking about God's glory this summer. Please show us your glory. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, it just seems like things keep getting worse and worse and worse. What in the world? Well, I think we're at the bottom. We're starting to climb our way out. So I would invite you back next week and we're going to talk about God's glory in Jesus. Hmm? You won't want to miss it. Father, be with us this morning. Thank you so much. God, I I don't know about my family here, but there are times that I feel this pressure of oppression so significantly that I just want to throw my hands up and say, I don't know what to do. But God, the reminder from your Holy Spirit and the reminder to my mind and sermon I preach to myself is God is faithful and God is in control. Help us to remember that, Father, in the, in the difficult times as well as in the good times. Father, I pray if there are those here this morning that are coming for answers and uncertain of where to turn because they don't have a relationship with your son, Jesus, would you give them the reminder that Jesus is the hope of the nations and if we place our faith and trust in him, he will give us new life and the blessed hope of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.